0: This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of the National Model Railroad Association. With almost 10,000 prototype photos and drawings online, we make it even more fun. Welcome to the Model Railway Show, the podcast that gives you something new to talk about next time you're at the hobby shop. I'm your host, Trevor Marshall. And I'm your other host, Jim Martin. We hope you're enjoying our
1: conversations with model railroading's thinkers and doers. We have two more thought-provoking discussions
0: lined up for you. Later in the show, I'll be speaking with Jim Providenza, a well-known modeler and prolific author who was also an early adopter of command control. Jim will remind us how DCC has changed the way we enjoy the hobby and just how far we've come. But first, we have a guest who questions the conventional thinking about where we're going, about how to attract new hobbyists. He argues it's time we drop the fires on a toy train icon. Here's Jim.
1: The very survival of model railroading as a mainstream hobby depends on finding new, younger recruits. It's a given that not enough young people are entering this rewarding hobby to replace all the gray hairs who are going to be making their horizontal exit over the next 20 years or so. For many years now, our mantra has been, we've got to get kids interested in the hobby. But according to my guest, Peter Cunningham, that's the wrong approach most kids aren't interested in getting interested. Peter's an interesting guy, born and educated in England, and now a very successful Ottawa-area artist who, among other things, paints wonderfully evocative studies of steam locomotives. He's an accomplished model railroader, both indoors and outdoors. He belongs to the British Railway Modelers of North America and recently became editor of the BRMNA Journal. In an editorial a while back, Peter put forth the opinion that Thomas the Tank Engine is simply not delivering the goods. That is, wagon loads of youngsters into the hobby. Peter says we've got to aim higher. Sell the hobby to those with disposable income and a hankering for a challenge. Which begs the question, if they don't come to us, how do we go to them? Peter, welcome to the Model Railway Show.
2: Thank you very much, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: And I must compliment you on your insightful editorial. I thought it described really well the multifaceted delights of model railroading, as well as the challenge of making others see that it has to offer. Uh, I hope our listeners took time to open the link to it.
2: Thank you, Jim. Very kind of you. Now, you give Thomas
1: the Tank Engine a pretty rough ride. He's been getting praise for years for getting young children an interest in trains. Uh, So what's up here?
2: Well, it's funny. I, um, I have to go back to a model railway exhibition i was at last year and during a a break in proceedings i had a look around the hallway at all the people that were visiting and it was a sea of gray hair and balding old men like myself (laughs) and i didn't see any young children or young teens um except for the you know little ones being towed around by grandparents and i started to think where are all the children where are all the new generation of modelers It used to be that Thomas the Tank Engine was held up as the saviour, if you like, of the hobby. Because of his tremendous uh, attraction to uh, the very little, Thomas was always looked upon as, uh, you know, well, if they're like Thomas the Tank Engine, they're bound to become railway modelers down the road. And I just realized that this isn't necessarily the case. He's been going now in his sort of modern TV form since, I think, about 1984, I think it was. when. If you remember, that was when Ringo Starr was the, um, the narrator. Well, that's 27 years ago, Jim, and uh, if you were five or six, 27 years ago, you should be beating the door down to get into the hobby, and I don't see the evidence of it.
1: Now that you make that point, there's no connect between Thomas and the hobby, uh, Thomas is purchased for these children as a toy, but unless the parents see the connection to model railroading, that next step isn't taken. Is that what the problem is?
2: Absolutely, and I think that word toy is a, is a really interesting one because i go even further and say that Thomas actually does our hobby more harm than good. If only in the minds of non-modellers and the popular uh, media, it just reinforces this sort of false perception that we are really nothing more than little boys playing with choo-choo's. I see that Thomas has nailed us to the nursery floor in many ways.
1: <laughs> so here we sit, cases of arrested <laughs> development, Craig. Yeah,
2: absolutely,
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> Without a parental interest, does model railroading even have a chance of attracting anyone from the teen years on down?
2: That's an interesting question. The short answer is No. And I think the long answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> so, aside from
1: modern distractions, what, what's keeping the kids from wanting to try the hobby?
2: I, th- I don't know. I think maybe it's the persona, it's an old fashioned hobby. We live in an electronic age, and kids live in a virtual reality world. There's little incentive, I think, to sit and spend time cutting out and gluing together plastic and cardboard to make railways, especially when it's something that you know, most kids today just can't relate to. They don't have any experience of railways. I just think they see it as being uncool and uh, not for them.
1: Yeah, we'll get back to that. Like you, yeah. I grew <laughs> up with those marvelous British boys' annuals and Meccano magazine and all these things that made you want to try to do things. Anyway, enough of this commiserating. You say we should go after the 30 and 40-somethings. Why this age group? What might attract them?
2: Perhaps I'm thinking these are people who've grown up a little bit. They're they're adults. They have a bit more time, a bit more money. Uh, Maybe there's a nostalgia for something from the past. Maybe people looking for a challenge, creative outlet, a relaxing, fulfilling hobby. I think those are the sort of people we should be looking towards trying to attract in and not children, per se.
1: Which, I guess, leads into this. Who is failing here? We've got manufacturers, train show promoters, the hobbyists, the media. Let's take them in that order. First, the manufacturers are producing more and more product into a market that simply can't last. Are they doing anything other than perhaps preparing to diversify when the train bubble pops?
3: I
2: don't know. I'm not so sure we can actually pinpoint a specific area where blame or or responsibility is I think we've never had it so good as far as manufacturers go. Well,
1: it's a marvellous time. but
2: Absolutely. I mean, thanks to cheap Chinese labour, you can now buy off-the-shelf plastic loco that you know, has all the detail of the old brass imports yeah. and but, for a fraction of those prices.
1: But uh, that's now. What about uh, 30 years from now, for example? Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah. that's a good point, too. Should train
1: yeah. show organisers be putting more of an educational component into their exhibitions, such as interpretive exhibits and beginners clinics for families? A lot of these shows are just vendors and model railroad setups with a bewildering array of product and this kind of secret skill that they perceive themselves as not being able to pursue. Should train shows be more educational?
2: I think to a certain extent they should be. I mean, it's difficult for train show organizers. They, you know, they, they have to uh, pay their way. They have to get people through the door. They have to get vendors behind their tables. And they have to try and show a variety of quality lay acts, which as you know, in North America, all the best modeling takes place in people's basements. Mm-hmm. So unlike in the UK, where there's a lot more portable layouts, that can to go to, uh, to layouts. I think clinics and demonstrations are very important. But I think fundamentally, it's education and communication. I think that those are the keys. If people don't understand what they're looking at, it's up to us to sort of fill in the blanks for them. That's um, right.
1: You've got to have a good talker to explain this. To absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I, I see some of these uh, setups where the hobbyists seem wrapped up in running trains. Anyway, that brings us around yeah. to the hobbyists. Should we as hobbyists be giving more thought into effectively communicating with train show visitors, or for that matter, with any person who asks about model railroading?
2: That's an interesting question, Jim, because a a lot of response I had from my editorial, a a lot of models were saying, it's not our problem. It's all going to fade away when we go, blah, blah, blah more positive side, I think the general feeling that railway modelling has sort of grown up, sort of matured into more of an adult hobby, and scale models and and fine scales kits and everything that are on the market today are not children's toys. No. Yeah, you know, the quality and fidelity to so the prototype is far superior than, yes. than when i was a boy our oh. uh, modeling techniques have developed over the last 20 years and the borders of the old sort of train set mentality have been pulled down yes um, as you know yeah. it's this breathtaking work going on out there these days
1: i think it comes down to us as hobbyists we've got to sell the hobby to people who ask about it and present ourselves as, as adults who are involved in a fascinating and rewarding hobby anything mm. we can do to alter media perceptions uh, look at the rough ride Rod Stewart got from Jimmy Kimmel.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I cited the Rod Stewart interview in my editorial. It, to me, typifies the sort of sneering, dismissive approach that uh, some media hacks love to take. Yet Rod didn't apologize for his hobby, and he wasn't ashamed of it. And I I think that shows us a a way, in in many ways. We we need to take ourselves a bit more seriously, because if we don't, I don't think anybody else will. However, (laughs) having said that, Jim, at the same time, we need to show that at the end of the day, it really is a pleasurable pursuit. I won't say fun, because that sounds too simplistic, and believe me, when, when you're struggling to put a british loco kit together in each brass fun is not the adjective you reach for <laughs>
1: it's satisfaction to is, quote another british musician right.
2: exactly <laughs> it, it is a, you know, a multifaceted yeah. hobby and i think it does have a fine future you know perhaps we have to go to the internet to the uh, virtual world to get new people in i don't know i got a friend who has a basement layout it's run by computers he has cameras in all his locomotives it's science fiction to me, as, as uh, looking, looking at it from, say, 40 years ago. It was right up there with you know jetpacks and yep. robot workers. So I think we have a future, and I certainly hope we do, because to me, this is the best hobby in the world.
1: Well, amen to that, and thank you for your time, Peter. We hope this conversation has given other hobbyists out there something to chew on and perhaps a new way to present the hobby to others. Thanks for your thoughts here on the Model Railway Show.
2: You're more than welcome, Jim. Thank you very much.
0: Well, Jim, if that doesn't bring listeners to a boil, I don't know what will. Everybody should have an opinion on this issue. And to help you form yours, we've posted Peter's original editorial with his permission on our website, themodelrailwayshow.com. Don't forget, you can use the Contact Us form to let us know what you think. And while you're online, check out our gallery of photos from
1: past and current guests on Flickr. And don't forget, you can also find us on Facebook. Next up, anybody who enjoys the flexibility and power of today's digital command control systems can thank the pioneers who persevered with cantankerous controllers and
0: king-sized decoders. To explain... Here's Trevor with his guest. Go to your local hobby shop or surf the web, and you'll find many off-the-shelf locomotives equipped from the factory with a digital command control decoder. Often those locomotive decoders are also onboard sound systems. Take them home, put them on the track, and they're ready to go. DCC has taken off in the 21st century, but the concept of being able to independently control several locomotives on the same stretch of track dates back several decades. Lionel offered a rudimentary system in the 1940s that used vacuum tubes and oscillators, while analog command control systems have been commercially available since the 1960s. It's hard to imagine what those early days of command control must have been like. Fortunately, we don't have to imagine it, because my guest is a modeler who embraced those early systems in his pursuit of better layout operations. Jim Providenza is a well-known magazine contributor and champion of realistic operations. His HO scale Santa Cruz Northern has been featured in many how-to-operate articles in the mainstream press, as well as in specialty publications such as the dispatcher's office from the operations special interest group. What's more, realistic operations was a central theme when Jim's layout was featured in volume 35 of the Great Model Railroads video series from Alan Keller Productions. We could talk for hours about operations on the SCN, but one of the tools that makes realistic running possible is the use of DCC. Jim's experience with command control for model railroads started in the 1970s, and to give us an idea of just how far we've come and provide us with some expert insight into where we could be going, he joins us today. Welcome to the Model Railway Show, Jim.
3: Well, thank you, Trevor. It's wonderful to be here.
0: Now, before we talk about command control systems, I do think we have to set this up a bit for our audience. Tell me a bit about your passion for operations. When did that bug bite for you, and what is it that you really love about it?
3: Thinking about this, it's something that kind of came up out of a series of things. It's almost like this was made to order, and I didn't realize it when it was happening. As I was getting into my mid-20s, I was starting to do a fair amount of rail fanning. I had picked up Trains Magazine, and I'd been a subscriber to Model Railroad for years, and it really piqued my interest on what was a railroad really about. At the same time, I was following in the hobby press people like John Allen and, and Wit Towers. And then all of this kind of culminated with Alan McClellan's BO and o story. That tied together with it about that same time, I started to become good friends with Rick Kang, who was a working train dispatcher, a large format railfan photographer, and a very serious model railroader who was totally interested in operations. That all combined gave me a, a basis for saying, you know, when I design the next model railroad, it's going to be with operations in mind.
0: One of the things that really helped with that, I guess, was the advent of early command control systems in the 1970s. You adopted one of those early ones, the Alphatronic system.
3: What happened, again, this goes back to Alan McClellan, and, and I don't remember if it was exactly in the VNO story or a companion article. He talked about using the Alphatronic system. Henry Grossnickel was the developer of Alphatronics. It was a pretty much a garage or basement operation, but it had 10 channels as opposed to the GE Astrax 5, and it had Walker Around capability. Once I saw that, it was like, oh, this is what it's got to be. I ordered it as I was building the first version of the Santa Cruz Northern. I never did wire that layout for block control.
0: Now, that brings up an interesting point. A lot of us, when we're doing our wiring, are still worrying about getting block control running. But you decided that command control was going to be the future of the hobby, or at least of your hobby. Why is
3: that? Trevor, it was the freedom that I saw. It was clear that the moment you could walk around with your train, that you became a real crew member on that locomotive or in that caboose that led to some thoughts and it tied into John Armstrong's designs for track planning for realistic operation that almost demanded if you were going to do that the ability to move with your train
0: now, people using DCC today may not appreciate just how far we've come since that first system, If they, especially if they haven't been around the hobby a long time. Can you describe some of your experiences with Alphatronics?
3: It really is hard to understand. The receivers in the mid-1970s were costing $50 each. They could barely fit inside a locomotive, and quite often you had to have a dummy unit. Because it was a very small operation, there was problems with availability at times. I eventually ended up purchasing some of the compatible early ASTRAC equipment, and that was even more difficult to work with. The receivers were sunk in a gel. They were over an inch square. They were meant to go into O-scale or maybe a large HO-scale steam tender, and it took a fair amount of pairing to get them down in size. Because it was a radio carrier signal, you also had problems with crosstalk. As the components would heat up, the frequency would start to shift, and all of a sudden, you'd be controlling another locomotive that you weren't intending to. And yet,
0: despite all of this, you still decided that DCC was the future of the hobby, or at least command control
3: was. Well, well, carrier control, yeah, that wasn't DCC at that time. But yes, absolutely.
0: From the Alphatronics, you went straight into DCC then. You didn't have anything in between uh, the Alphatronics and, and what you're using now? or?
3: That's correct. I had the opportunity to sample several of the other systems, and so I was familiar with them. But we knew in the early 90s that people were trying to develop digital systems as opposed to analog systems. And so was a matter of waiting to see what happened.
0: So what made you change then? Did you see it somewhere and say, okay, it's time to retire the Alphatronics?
3: Well, what happened is that the NMRA had had a working group going for several years, and they got in contact with Bernd Lenz in Germany. Bernd held the patents, of course, to his system, and he still does, in Germany and Europe, in the United States, he released his patents to the NMRA to use as a basis for developing the DCC standard that we have today. Once that happened, it was clear that we now had something that would be available. Other manufacturers would undoubtedly start to work in it. And in 1994, I decided to support Lens from the standpoint of they had released their patents you know, for all of us for our benefit.
0: And I guess in the same way that you took that plunge with Alphatronics, you might have had a bit of trepidation about- doing this, but on the other hand, you said, it's time to do it, so you did it.
3: Yes, and I think any of the manufacturers, DCC manufacturers today, have good, worthwhile products. I I think it speaks well of the fact that, to my knowledge, only one of the early manufacturers has retired from the ring, shall we say, and all of the products have continued to develop our capabilities of systems and decoders have increased ten times, a hundred times. Prices have fallen. You know, sound has become available. It's just everything you could have hoped for back in the early nineties.
0: Now, despite the fact I said you took that plunge and just said this is the way I'm going to do it, there are a lot of people out there who haven't. They still have trepidation about DCC, even though it's been around for quite a long time now. Do you have any advice for listeners who maybe have not yet taken that plunge? Maybe some thoughts on ways to make the switch that'll give them a greater chance of having a successful experience with it?
3: The first thing I would recommend to people is that you go and experience the systems that are available. Find out who in your area or who within some reasonable traveling distance is using, say, NCE or using Lens or using Digitracks. I'm sure most people would be happy to have you come over, hopefully for like an operating session where you can actually experience it in use, and see what they feel like. See how you like how things respond. See how the throttles feel in your hand because each one of them is different and then look if you can in your area if there is a consensus among people who are already using DCC for say CvP easy DCC or lens or whatever and check that out and see okay I know that I like a couple of these systems but here in my area most of the people or there's a good sized group that are all using this one particular product then I would say go with that product because you'll have a, a built-in local support base that can help you through any sort of teething problems or anything that you might have.
0: We all have wish lists. We all would love to get manufacturers in the room and say, could you give us this? But a lot of us just don't have that experience to really be able to say, this is what we need. And I know this because I've been doing it for 40 years. But you do have that. If you could get all of the DCC manufacturers in a room together and suggest something you'd like to see for the next generation of command control, what would you want to say to them?
3: For myself and for anybody using multiple unit diesels, Trevor, I want a way to have a painless experience matching my CVs, my performance CVs from one locomotive to another. I want somebody to make and distribute a program and a set of hardware so that I can go in and either create a standard or set a particular locomotive to be my standard and then automatically match the additional locomotives that I want to to that because that's extremely difficult to do still.
0: I guess Decoder Pro makes it easier to enter those numbers, but what you're talking about is really having the system figure it out by getting feedback from the locomotives, for example.
3: Yes, I use Decoder Pro and I have a timer, but there's no feedback to that. So it's something that I have to work at manually and it becomes still extremely time-consuming and not nowhere near as precise as I think it could be done.
0: Well, if there are any DCC manufacturers listening out there today, you've heard it from Jim. Start working on it. Jim, thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show today. It's been a pleasure.
3: Thank you, Trevor.
0: I've been speaking with Jim Providenza, a well-known advocate for realistic model railroad operations who was an early adopter of command control systems.
1: I'll tell you, Trevor, as a Luddite, I've had my issues with the mysteries of DCC from time to time. But anyone who thinks DCC is too complicated or expensive should pick up one of those 30- or 40-year-old books on how to wire a model railroad. The bundles of cabled wire feeders and the toggle and rotary switches needed to install cab control wiring on even a relatively simple layout will send you running for the exits. The cost of switch gear alone these days could easily approach the cost of a basic DCC system.
0: Well, that's true enough, Jim, but won't you miss those cries of, Who's got my train?
1: Yeah, like I'd miss a toothache. Well, it's time to trace the shorts and the spaghetti under the staging yard. We'd like to thank our guests Peter Cunningham and Jim Providenza for their insights. And Trevor and i would still be playing with thomas the tank engine without the crew who keep the track smooth and the switches aligned thanks to technical director chris abbott musical maestro dave woodhead and creative
0: guru Otto bondrack next time assuming we don't release the factory installed smoke first we'll have jeremy st peter on board jeremy is from the weathering shop and he'll tell us about the art of weathering and weathering as an art Also, Ed Loazzo will be riding with us. Ed will fill us in on the annual National Association of S. Gagers Convention being held this year in conjunction with the NMRA National in Sacramento. For Jim Martin, I'm Trevor Marshall. Thanks for riding the rails with us here on the Model Railway Show.